Well, here we are, folks. The final episode, at least for now. And we have a big interview for you today. One of the founding fathers of quantum information theory, a physicist, an information theorist, and an IBM fellow, the photographer behind the famous picture captured at the Endicott House Conference 40 years ago, and the person whose name has been mentioned more times in the course of this series than any other. Charlie Bennett. Charlie Bennett. Charlie. Obviously, Charlie has done a lot of great work. That's right. Charlie Bennett. Charlie Bennett, who, inspired by Rolf Landauer's lecture on reversible computing, turned his attention away from computational biology towards information theory and joined IBM, where he found that the relationship between a system and its environment is adiabatic. That means that there is no heat exchanged between a system and its environment, no heat leaving or entering the system. And if an adiabatic computer could be built, it would be because of reversible circuits and, well, to quote from the abstract of Mr. Bennett's logical reversibility of computation paper, such machines may be made logically reversible at every step while retaining their simplicity and their ability to do general computations. This result is of great physical interest because it makes plausible the existence of thermodynamically reversible computers which could perform useful computations at useful speed while dissipating considerably. Thinking about reversibility brought Charlie to the quantum field because reversible transformations are possible in quantum mechanics. Now, do you get why we call this show forwards and backwards? <laughs> in all seriousness, though, this paper was published eight years before the conference at MIT's Endicott House, and this idea that it was possible to build computers without dissipating heat, or at least with considerably less heat dissipation, garnered attention from some of the leading physicists of the day, including Richard Feynman, who began to get involved in the field of reversible computing throughout the 1970s, and who would also attend the Endicott House conference in 1981, where, despite his quasi-celebrity status, Charlie Bennett remembers that he he was a tremendously smart person and aware that he was smart uh, and, and at, at, at ease with it. But it didn't seem when I was there that he was the like the only show and everybody was gathered around him and listening to him. Uh, there were important things that happened be, because of him. And one of them was that I think I managed to convince him. I think Fredkin, who knew him better, was trying to do that too. But I think I was able to to do it more well. Together, the two of us managed to do it to to get him off of the the sort of folklore idea of the time, which which Landau had started to address that that there's that number crunching is a, is is necessarily dissipative. That, that that there's a fundamental reason why computers have to use energy. And as and not just that you can make them more and more frictionless, frictionless and use less and less, but somehow every processing of a bit of information. Von Neumann said this. Of course, he had many other things in his plate at the time. He said it in a lecture that everybody kind of took seriously. Uh, that every elementary act of information processing consumes in a, a KT log two of of, uh, of energy, the, the the energy equivalent of a of a the thermal motion of a molecule and and uh, at at that time or maybe it was i think it was around that time Feynman and uh and uh, you can check on this whether it's true oh exactly the timing of it but he was teaching a course jointly with carver mead 
of, of, of the, you know, of the practical circuit design and Moore's law fame, who also believed this, that this was a fundamental limit. And, and together, Fredkin and Landauer and I convinced Spineman that it wasn't in computation, despite the, 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 the sort of the uh, material metaphors for it, uh, Babbage's store for the memory and mill for the processor and the modern term number crunching, it wasn't like a, 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 a grain mill at all. <clears throat> and that made it more interesting, theoretically, to Feynman. And I don't think it came out, it came out in some of his later papers, Speaking with Charlie for this show was a direct interaction with the past, where the legends of the field are not yet consigned to history, but are mentors and colleagues supporting an incredible career spent in quantum information theory. Besides, where else are we going to hear about Richard Feynman being convinced to attend the conference at Endicott House in the first place because Charlie, along with Edward Fredkin, got Feynman excited about reversible computing? The paper that he came at from the conference was about how... how a quantum computer ought to be the, the right model for simulating physics. But then he became interested in the quantum computer because it wasn't just a piece of hardware. It was like a quantum generalization of a classical computer. And a classical computer was a much more interesting idea if it could be reversible and much more like physics. A quantum computer wasn't just a piece of hardware. It was like a quantum generalization of a classical computer. And a classical computer was a much more interesting idea if it might be reversible, more like physics. Well, there you have it, folks. From the man who helped to create quantum information theory and with whom we have the privilege of speaking with for the duration of this episode, Mr. Charles Bennett. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, A History of Quantum Computing. At the beginning of our series, Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum, described in a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, Charlie Bennett as being a sort of Zelig-like character throughout the history of quantum computing. I remembered this when, during the course of our interview, Charlie described his early days as a graduate student. I had started in, uh, I was in chemical physics as a grad student. Uh, and I had sort of drifted over in the physics direction from starting in biochemistry. At, 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 uh, but fortunately, when I, when I was a grad student, uh, I was a teaching assistant in a course for science for non-scientists, non-science majors. One of the one of the one of the teachers. It was several teachers different, teaching different parts of the course. Was uh, James D. Watson, and so we learned all about the very relatively new at the time. Yeah genetic code and the ribosomes and and, the, and I said but I had I preserved this interest in in sort of uh, mathematical logic because as an undergraduate you know in this these formative years for you know deep ideas somebody told me about Gödel's incompleteness theorem and I said oh I got to understand that so I took a course uh, uh, as an elective on mathematical logic uh, as taught by Hao Wang <laughs> and so it occurred to me that, uh, that a, a ribosome is a kind of a Turing machine. You know, it works on a tape. And so then the, the big, the, 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 the I want to say, well, the critical step was that I went to, when I was a postdoc at Argonne Lab, I went to a lecture by, by Landauer 
on the fundamental energy cost of computing based on some work he'd done earlier. <laughs> and he and I said, well, gee, I I know how to calculate the energy used in a chemical reaction and chemical reactions are in principle reversible. And can I get the irreversible steps out of a computation? Can, can, can we just reprogram it so it doesn't have any irreversible steps? Uh, and it, you know, it turned out to be pretty easy. So Landauer really enjoyed the fact that somebody took this seriously and uh, he was a, you know, a good enough scientist that taking it seriously involving disproving his conjecture was, was much better than not reading his paper at all. <laughs> so he invited me to come to, uh, to IBM to, to, uh, to, to, to work on it, talk on it. I mean, it's one thing for me to say that Charlie was inspired by Landauer's work and that's why he turned towards information theory and eventually joined IBM, which, yeah, I did at the top of the episode, I, I said that. Uh, but it's another thing to hear Mr. Bennett himself describing his time as a student of James D. Watson. Charlie's brushes with history continued when he met Stephen Wiesner, then still a graduate student at Columbia University and another one of the key pioneers in quantum information theory, discoverer of quantum money and quantum multiplexing. The thing was that Wiesner was, was uh, somebody who else didn't promote himself at all. <laughs> in fact, he's really averse to fame. He's, he's had some, received some prizes where he deliberately avoided showing up to receive them and, and only came back later <laughs> when there wasn't a big crowd around. <laughs> he told, he, he wrote this paper, this, the, 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 this first paper in, in, in 1968 when he was participating in the sit-in at Columbia. And then I think he tried, he says he tried to, to publish it in I, IEEE information theory, but it was a physics paper and it, it didn't, he didn't pursue it enough to get it published until, so, so I was one of the people that he showed it to and realized it was really interesting stuff. And I kept telling everybody about it. And another person he told, showed it to was uh, Whit Diffie in the in the in the cryptography community and Whit Diffie says this is great I'll arrange to have it published in in the uh SIGAC news it was published verbatim the thing that he'd written in 1968 in 83 and that was that was the quantum money paper right yeah quantum money and the quantum multiplexing combining two messages in a form where if you read one it spoils the other and it was a very insightful paper but it was Essentially, it took a long time for people to, to, to notice it. And did you immediately sort of make that connection between reversible computing and, and what Wiesner was talking about with quantum money? And No, I, in a way, I knew about the, the Wiesner things before I started working on reversible computing. Because I did that while I was a postdoc and I started being a postdoc. And, well, it's about the same time, actually. I was a postdoc from... 1971 at, at, at Argonne from 1971 to 73, 72 or so. My reversible Turing machine paper came out in the 73. So I was a postdoc there just after I'd first learned of Wiesner's work. And originally I was thinking of reversible computing because Landauer had showed the importance of it. So I had these two things that one, one which I had myself worked on and developed that's reversible computing and the other uh these ideas of of uh, of wiesner which i was telling everybody about and 
and I told Gilles Brassard about them, but not until 1979, I think. I want to take a step back here and try to make the connection between reversible computing and what Wiesner was talking about in his paper regarding quantum money. What, what was it about Wiesner's paper that sort of connected with Landauer and reversibility? Was there a link between reversibility and computational complexity and Wiesner's discoveries? To help explain one of the major insights from this era, the pre-1981, pre-Endicott era, we turn once more to our dear friend, the global lead of quantum education and open science at IBM Quantum, Abraham Asfa, for an Abe Splainer. One of the key insights from that time is the idea that erasing bits of information, so even one bit of information, costs energy. And that energy is called the Landauer limit. Now, fundamentally, the the big realization at the time is that if you have reversible computing instead, where you don't erase information, then you don't need to have this energy cost. <laughs> Thank you, Abe. Uh, oftentimes, when we think of the events that have shaped our world, we think of the big moments, right? Speeches, battles, elections, I don't know, championship games. <laughs> Rarely do we think of history as beginning with a few scribbles on a small scrap of paper. Sebastian, Abe, and I identified the unusual and amusing origins of quantum information theory in our conversation with Charlie. There's that great, on uh, on one of the IBM research blogs, um, there's a, a photograph of a note that you jotted in 1970 that says, quantum information theory, conversation with Stephen Wiesner, who told me that a variation on the Einstein-Rosen-Podolsky-Gedenken Einstein, experiment can be used to send through a channel with a nominal capacity, one bit, two bits of information, subject, however, to the constraint that whichever bit the receiver chooses to read, the other bit is destroyed. And then at the top of it, it says false. <laughs> That's right. And the reason was, is that was, that was sort of a clue to another unusual property of quantum information, which uh, which now we talk the property of the Bell states, uh, that what what Wiesner was originally trying to do with that was do this multiplexing. That is the, a, a message which, because it can't be copied. Uh, the process of reading it one way keeps you from from reading it the other way. And he thought he could do that with just uh, a, a pair of, of what, uh, pardon the modern jargon, a pair of qubits in a bell state. <laughs> and, but you can only do it if you're not allowed to measure the two bits together at the same time. If, you, if you're restricted to to uh, separate measurements because if you have two qubits together you get two bits through and you can read both of them well that that so he he a, a few months later he said it's not true because if you read both of them at the same time so then i began describing to other people this idea of c coding two bits of information into two qubits of which the sender only has to ha handle one of them, which is this. So that's an idea that 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 was Wiesner's, but he never even wrote up at all. He just talked about it as as a, as an error in something that he told to me before, and so I I wrote a paper up with him in the style of the Physical Review, and it finally was published in 1992. 
even with a suggested physical implementation of it for super dense coding. May 6, 2021 marks the 40th anniversary of the conference at the MIT Endicott House, and so it was top of mind for all of us. And the progress made from then until now was worth reviewing. Since that conversation at Endicott House, um, when did it when did things start to change in the direction of people asking how can we build these systems? Was that part of the discussion in Endicott House, or no, did that happen no, that later on? Later, and there and it was a lot of other places. You see, one of the reasons that Endicott was important is that there were all these people who who as I put it, didn't think about uh, physics of computing as a day job. They, they, they cared about it and they, and they, they gossiped about it, but they didn't, they didn't work on it. And that conference got some of them together and, and, and also others who weren't physically there. Further breakthroughs continued in the decade following the Endicott House Conference throughout the 90s, as many listeners will remember from back in episode two when we spoke with Peter Shore, the creator of Shore's algorithm. And progress in quantum information science was marked by the growth of the conferences that followed Endicott. And uh, Charlie references a conference at Villa Guilino here in Turin, Italy. We asked Peter Shore about the growing interest in the, the early 90s in quantum computing. And he, he said to ask you because you were take, the one taking the picture at, at, the, at the, uh, the conference every year. So you would know how big the group was. I remember at one of the, about 1993, 92, it was at 93. I think it was after we had discovered teleportation, quantum teleportation. We were sitting around there and we had, there was about, in those days, there was maybe 15 people at these Colino conferences. It got to be more, it got to be like 50 later. Uh, and somebody said, gee, I wonder if you could use a quantum computer to solve some hard problem like factoring. And we said, oh, that would be wonderful. And one of the people, you know, had an, an, an enough background in number theory and, 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 you know, what I had, I didn't know what factoring algorithms were like and how they worked, you know, other than just try to divide it by everything. Isn't that interesting too, that I, I find that uh, such a fascinating coincidence that, that then uh, classical cryptography ends up being threatened in a way by, by Shor's algorithm. It's a strange thread of crypto through this whole thing. It, it's, I, I ties, I think, of course, quantum information is makes a, a connection that doesn't exist in classical information between between uh, well, but, but between secrecy and and and, and noise. You know, there's noise-induced disturbance, noise-induced. But this this one one might well ask, why did these elementary applications of quantum ideas to completely different things and really what I would say is is the is the rebuilding of the theory of the theory not the practice but the rebuilding of the theory of of communication and computation on a quantum foundation is really is a better way it's it's like I always say it's like it's like the the complex numbers instead of the real numbers. The real numbers are a useful subset of the complex numbers in the same way that classical 
communication and computation are, are a useful subset of the kinds of communication and computation that, that nature allows. In the same way that classical communication and computation are a useful subset of the kinds of communication and computation that nature allows. The most prominent innovators in the field of classical computing, still the way that the vast majority of people all over the world understand the possibilities of computing, did not really encourage people, Charlie argued, to think about reversibility until Rolf Landauer. You know, because every kind of machine is 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 irreversible. So what? You know, it just takes a little energy to operate it. The interesting thing is, what can you get it to do? And maybe how quickly can you get it to do at computational complexity? But that didn't even come until well after computability theory. So, uh, so that's why quantum information, which could have been discovered, I mean, a natural person to discover it if he didn't get involved in in building practical computers and advising the military and so on, would have been at von Neumann. Von Neumann and Dirac, if they had had a, a few quiet weeks, would have said, gee, well, except that Shannon would have to have participated too. They would have. So in fact, you didn't have to wait too long because it was only 20 years between Shannon and Wiesner. I used to say entanglement was understood and considered to be dramatically important by Schrodinger and Einstein and Bohr. Uh, but it wasn't considered to be useful. Yeah, so the idea that the, that that, uh, that that you could look at these things in the same quantum way, in the same quantitative way that, that information theorists, even the very notion of a qubit, and that was a word invented by by Ben Schumacher, who was one of Wheeler's students, who who just said, yes, we can abstract this notion away from its physical carrier, carrier and, and think about it with a less uh, distracted mind, if we give it a name like that. Thinking about something with a less distracted mind and whether or not something is useful or just dramatically important, these are oft-discussed topics in the history of any breakthrough technology. And in hearing Charlie's story, once these concepts, reversibility, entanglement, etc., were discovered, once Ben Schumacher, the student of John Wheeler's at Princeton who coined the term qubit, had made his contribution to history, you could see how, from the quantum pioneer's point of view, they'd be asking what the holdup was, why major advancements in the field had a tendency to come slowly, sporadically, and then all at once. Well, if the time period between Endicott in 81 and Shor's algorithm in the mid-90s was relatively quiet, as was the period of time in the early to mid-2000s, which we've discussed in past episodes, then it might be fair to say this is how breakthroughs come, in waves. And where advances were made by experimentalists, say, they then inspire theorists to pick up the pace and so on. It does seem sometimes like there's almost a, a race between the the experimentalists and the theorists to come to, to who's who's going to either make high quality enough qubits um, that uh, current error correction um, theory will be you know uh, sufficient to get logical fault tolerant qubits, or if the theorists will come up with better ways to, to encode information. I would I would say that that's exactly the wrong metaphor. It's it's like a, a relay race, 
where the participants help each other because it's pretty clear, I think, that neither of them will be able to do it by themselves. And the success, such as, such as it will turn out to be, will come from improvements in both. You mentioned computational complexity. Um, it's, a, it's a topic that you've, um, you've touched on a few times in, in um, papers and, and talks that I've, I've uh, seen. And it, in, there's, um, you even use it as, as a, a potential basis for, for an um, ethical system, uh, where, which I find fascinating. Uh, it's it's a, a really interesting idea that the, the, more, uh, the more difficult it is to replace something, the more bad it is to destroy that thing, essentially, as, as, as I understand it. Yeah, well, that's sort of that's that gets away from the uh, the question of of who is it valuable for. It's just like saying, well, uh, even if it's even if it's worthless, if it would take a lot of effort to replace it, it's you, you shouldn't you shouldn't destroy <laughs> it. I, I just I mean I wonder is there a connection in your mind between that notion of complexity and you know, I mean, what you've been talking about is is um, classical information theory being a, a useful subset of, of this um, more expansive um, uh, information theory that's rooted in, in quantum mechanics uh, and the physical um, basis for information. Is Do you see any relationship between, um, you know, the, the physical basis for information and, and that that uh, connection to complexity? I, I No, I would say th- that... Uh, the it's not that there's a physical basis for information. I mean, I, I consider myself both a physicist and an information theorist, but these uh, features of, of, of quantum information theory, they are essentially mathematical. They're, they, uh, the way I put it is that, that, uh, Turing and Shannon made some some daring and tremendously useful abstractions of what computation was and what communication was. But they threw away as mere physics or engineering some parts that were essentially mathematical. And those two parts were the uh, questions of reversibility certainly a mathematical notion and superposition which is you could imagine a universe in which there was no such thing as superposition it would be a, a classical universe it was what I the universe that Einstein I mean excuse me, that Newton thought in but the mathematical s- structure of which you can get from superposition is and which you know Archimedes could have discovered it if he decided to think in terms of qubits and, and, uh, instead of whatever we were saying. Yeah, it, it was always there. It's a purely mathematical thing. And there are other more arcane parts of mathematics and quaternions and things like that, which are, it's not clear what, what in nature corresponds to them. But the fact that it's useful is, is a physical property. But the fact that it's elegant mathematically would be there. They're, they're probably, yeah, I won't even say, maybe in other parts of the universe that, that where the physical laws are different, they still have quantum information theory. Probably they still have quantum mechanics, and they still have, you know, even the even the string string theorists say, though there may be other parts of the universe that we'll never find, they'll never see, uh, 
where everything is different, but probably not gravitation or superposition. Maybe it was the fact that we knew this was our last episode of the season. Maybe it was the nature of time and, well, reversibility and all that we'd been discussing over the course of this episode. But Abe got to thinking about how Charlie relayed the history of the field we've been covering these past six episodes. Charlie, I have uh, just, even listening to you now, I'm just very impressed by how much of a bird's eye view you have. And I'm thinking about where that comes from. You've been in this field since, since it was, as you put it, dinner table conversation where people were having a hard time thinking of it as a day job to where it is today. And I'm just curious, how do you see the field now from your perspective, generally the quantum information sciences altogether? And where do you think a lot of focus is being spent versus where focus maybe should be redirected to in some cases? How do you see the status of the field today? It's also, it's, it's, that's a sort of gentle way of saying, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Which is, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but, uh, (laughs) but it's always, you know, it's, 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 I like to make more, it's in terms of recommendations, more like what such successes that I've had in, in my scientific career come from having a, a a breadth of perspective and also i think many scientific advances come from from patience waiting a long time and so a, 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 a young scientist is in in pressure they always feel the pressure what should I work on? What's going to be the hot field? What's going to be the field where the big discoveries are made? And maybe that's different at different times. But for example, this this is the these are the decades of great progress in molecular biology. Something that got started in the fifties, and yet took a number of decades to come to fruition. Maybe physics was the bigger area at one time. I remember one time when the in in the history of IBM, there used to be something called the Physical Sciences Department. At one time, uh, f- physics and the physics that went into designing electronic devices was a big big part of 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 IBM, and and the basic research that led to that was very important. It's still somewhat important, but and I, this is where I remember Armstrong saying this to me. He said software and communication and what you can do with those things is going to explode over the next few decades and the hardware that you do it on is going to become relatively less important so all you guys who are busy working on the physics of transistors beware (laughs) there's going to be you may not shrink but as part of the whole you're going to be the, the, the tail instead of the dog. <laughs> so, and it turned out to be true. And yet there are ideas that, that, that if even at IBM, that people cared about early on, like uh, speech recognition. And the, it, before that, 
when the computers were first invented, they thought it would be great for language translation. And so artificial intelligence went through a, a many decades long winter where, where it didn't turn out to be very good at what people thought it would be able to do. And yet that kind of thing is, 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 is natural in science. You know, think of how long it took from Babbage to, to the computer revolution that we have now. And, and I think that it, it, as people, especially earlier in their career, where they have to worry about whether they're going to get tenure or, or, or a permanent job, it's very hard for them to say, oh, let's see, this is an interesting idea. I don't know what it's good for. Maybe I'll never even see it applied to anything, but it's interesting and I want to understand it. And so that's the thing that I think is is not only in this era, but there's the famous example of of, of, of Faraday when he was giving his, his public lectures on science. And he, he had, uh, it was, I think it was a lecture on the halogens, which he had just discovered chlorine or, or, or bromine or something like that. Of course, the compounds of those, of, of those elements were well known. And somebody asked him, what, what's it good for? And... Uh, he said, well, I, I, he said, this is not an original thought of mine, but I can do no better than to quote the words of, of uh, Benjamin Franklin when he was asked a similar question. When you, and he says, what's the use of a newborn baby? So I think that, that, that long perspective and the people who said, well, just because it isn't working now, it may be for reasons, let's say, take, take the, this, the way uh, machine learning has taken off. It just required a, a few more powers of 10 of, of Moore's law and make you know, enough memory and fast enough processing and, and improvements in algorithms and so on. But people need to think on a longer scale, time scale than 10 years or even a human lifetime. And that, that's a real handicap for people because think of, think of all the world problems that we have now that would, if people remembered the Second World War, for example, a little better, and and and, and the kind of problems that 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 uh, preceded that, they would they would put up with the minor inconveniences of democratic government a little better than they than they are now. As we reached the close of our conversation with Charlie, we found ourselves returning to where we began our season. We found ourselves reflecting on the gathering at the MIT Endicott House for the Physics of Computation conference back in 1981. What happened to the people who were at Endicott House uh, in terms of their research directions? Did they continue down the same lines? Did they make dramatic shifts in interest? Before long, we were all looking at the infamous photo of the conference over Zoom. The photo that, again, Charlie himself took. So we look at the top, there's Freeman Dyson. You know, you all know about him. He thought about the, the way the universe would be uh, trillions of years from now, what the final state of it would be like. That came out recently in a cartoon in The New Yorker by Roz Chast. <laughs> These other people I've looked up, a lot of them are, have, are, are well known. There's Frederick Cantor, I mentioned. Marion Porel uh, was interesting because she was the only uh, woman at the conference who was a scientist. And she 
I think she was born in in the uh, in the 1930s or late 20s. Um, and she they wouldn't let her into Bronx High School of Science because she was uh, they didn't have boy only boys went to the Bronx High School of Science. And Bronx High School of Science was the first of the New York elite uh, schools mm-hmm. by over a decade to admit girls but not early enough to admit her. As I watched Charlie point to various colleagues, reflecting on that fateful day, I thought of something he said elsewhere in our discussion about the way that the stuff of the world behaves. And I thought back to our conversation with Peter Shore too, about the limits of anthropocentrism in the realm of quantum information science. To circle back just for a second, isn't, I mean, you were talking about how physics, physical sciences was uh, very important in that, the, in the early development of, of the classical computing industry, and then software sort of ate everything, to use Mark Andreessen's term. But I mean, in a sense, isn't physics having the last laugh by, by you know, circling back and saying, by the way, all of information theory is actually physics. Well, it isn't. No, it, I mean, it isn't the physics. And that's, of course, I would disagree with Landau. He said information is physical. I think this is this was an undiscovered part of mathematics and, uh, and an, undis- an undiscovered part of computer science. Uh, and the relation between the two is is is, I think, rich in a whole different way, because and this is the this was the this was the uh, the more I read about the things that he wrote, what Wheeler what Wheeler wrote and said, the more I like it, because it, it was all sorts of things that he didn't quite understand or grasp, but he knew, and he, well, his conviction was that the way physics appears to us, the way the world. I mean, there's other aspects of the world. There's there's geology and biology and so on. But the way that the stuff of the world behaves isn't just something to be figured out by experiment and observation. It involves thinking in a very broader than a human can easily do way about all possible worlds. In other words, how could the laws of nature be? And maybe we're, we, we at least have to be a, a consistent world. But there are other mathematically different possibilities. And so and it, 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 it takes physics to help broaden people's uh, intuition to be broad enough to to as, embrace aspects of mathematics that they that they didn't even know about before this challenge broadening people's intuition to be broad enough to embrace aspects of mathematics that they didn't even know about before as as charlie says also got me thinking about each of the other conversations we've had on this show with leaders from the academy and industry with giants of the field like Mr. Bennett here and Peter Shore, with historians and funders, and and yet the conversation that played loudest in my head that I kept going back to was one that Sebastian and I had one-on-one when I asked what drew him to this field in the first place. Scientific paradigms have a way of affecting 
cultural imagination. Newtonian physics sort of gives rise to the sort of common knowledge of like cause and effect, right? Um, relativism, uh, you could argue, sort of brings the idea of subjective reality, subjective uh, um, perception of reality to, to the popular imagination. Um, it, it may be that, that quantum computation, quantum mechanics brings this, this idea to popular imagination or the, or the, the cultural imagination that, that, that everything is information, that, that what we're experiencing is just the way information instantiates it. You know, I mean, I, I, I think about error correction. Um, it, it's very, very, very difficult to make, technically difficult to make a qubit um, because it's very susceptible to noise. It's very susceptible to its its uh, coherent state collapsing. What that means essentially is it behaving like normal matter, right? Like the, the universe is kind of error corrected qubits, right? <laughs> like it's it like the the fabric of 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 reality is kind of what keeps all of these subatomic particles from behaving in very strange ways that we want to provoked so that we can use them in ways that, that you know, for, for computation. It, it does feel like there's some emergent sort of model for what is consciousness, um, what is, what, what, I mean, the, the nature of the universe seems to be that it is information at, at its core. And what does that mean? I, I don't, I don't really know, but it, it does seem like a really new idea. Now, I've shared part of that conversation with you all before, uh, earlier in the season, but it sums up nicely, or as well as anything can be summed up in this sort of endeavor, the idea that what each of our guests, what Charlie Bennett and Praneha Narang and Pat Guman and Jay Gambetta and Margaret Martinosi and Tina Brower-Thomas and Ken Brown and Peter Shore and Susanna Glickman have all worked towards their entire careers a way to prove that the universe is information, that this is the field where we have an opportunity to build a genuinely inclusive workforce, that we stand on the precipice of an entirely new era of computing? Well, these are all the efforts of folks who care about solving seemingly intractable problems and making a positive impact. Or, to paraphrase Pat Guman particularly in episode four, they're in this to make history. And it has been an honor for myself, Sebastian, and Abe to present a glimpse into this history over the course of this series. Thank you. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guest, Charles Bennett, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfaw, the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hoover, and it has been a real, real pleasure to to create this series for you, to share it all with you. And uh, yes, hopefully we do catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.